Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Global affairs seemingly being framed more and more in the American-Russian-Chinese triangle, Europe has to contend with the impact it has on its identity, security architecture and policies. Is NATO still the basic political and military infrastructure for most of the continent? And if so, how does it relate to the Ukraine war and the ominous nature of Putin's ideological outlook? What is the future of Europe's relations with the Anglo-American alliance? How can the EU adopt and maintain a common migration policy? And can Germany, France and the other countries respond to rising challenges emanating out of Turkey, Iran, India, Brazil and the major regional powers of the Pacific? Good evening, I'm Jonathan Hassan and this is the 16th edition of TV7 Europa Stance. Joining us to dissect Europe's state of internal and foreign affairs are retired General Klaus Naumann, who is the former Chief of General Staff of the Bundeswehr as well as Chairman of NATO's Military Committee. Thank you for joining us, General. My pleasure. Also joining us is Professor Uri Rosenthal, former Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands. Pleasure. Mr. Timo Soini, who is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Deputy Premier of Finland. Thank you. And Professor Emil Kovac, who is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Croatia. Thank you for joining us as well. As we do every month, General, we'll start with you. How about uh, granting us an outlook on the past month? Uh, what, in your opinion, was the most dramatic shift of uh, events, uh, considering there are so many currently at play? Well, we are living in a world in turmoil, so it's difficult to identify uh, one single point. But it seems to me uh, the one event which I would highlight is the recent G7 meeting for one simple reason. It uh, clearly stated that the G7 are united, are unanimous in their support uh, to end this ongoing tragedy in Ukraine. And at the same time, and I think that was quite interesting, they extended a hand of cooperation to China, if one reads carefully what they were saying, and also to the so-called Global South by inviting uh, some of the leaders from India to South Africa. And I believe uh, that indicates quite clearly whether the outlook is European or not. The state of affairs is global, and all what we do will have a global impact. Professor Rosenthal? Let, let me follow up on what General Nauman is saying. And um, I would say if I would pick up some events which really strike me as being extremely important, I would go indeed uh, southwards and eastwards and beyond Europe. And then I notice, for instance, that China has done this China South Asia, uh, Central Asia Summit where it brings together these countries which used to be part of the Soviet Union. 
are now independent. Uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. And then even the situation that China is trying to get its direct connection to Europe beyond the uh, Russian territory. And this makes for me a, a point which I already felt very, very heavily when this aggression of uh, Russia started towards against Ukraine. It was immediately clear to me at least, and I'm not arrogant about it, that in the relation between China, America and Russia, in any case, when we talk of China and Russia, China is the principal and Russia is, well, you can call it what you want, the agent in the principal agent relation. You could call it a puppet. You could call it the victim of its own arrogance. Mr. Soini? Yeah, of course, uh, Ukraine is an open bound in, in, in Europe and it's so near also to Finland that we are following up it very keenly and uh, we have been waiting more Russian reaction and now they have emerged some stuff also some um, hybrid operations to our our establishments and clearly messages that something may be coming people have been going on to Russia by uh, reloading their tanks and, and I'm just waiting when it will be the first win held in custody in, in, in Russia because Russia always want to have a bilateral conflict so to say because US is too big for them, European Union is too big for them but individual country is suitable conflict for them and I, I think that Russia will pick up some some countries in, in Europe in, in that sense, uh, especially mm. their neighbors. Another interesting and striking part is the countries like Kazakhstan and so forth, because now it's quite clear that the Western stuff is sold to Kazakhstan and the likes, and then they are <laughs> exported uh, to, to Russia. And uh, what kind of pattern and how big this uh, function is and, and sadly so, it does seem that even so that G7 is maybe, maybe launching a, a decision which enables even the fighters' airplanes to be sent to Ukraine, that this is going to be long-lasting conflict in years to come. And we have waited quite long that there would be some kind of mixed feelings within Silovics, within Russian mm -hmm. Putin establishment, but there are no signs of that. Professor Kovacs? Thank you for inviting me, Jonathan, to this uh, panel. It's an honor, a privilege. These uh, <laughs> distinguished gentlemen discuss these uh, important <laughs> topics. Uh, I would say, like um, the general did and uh, Professor uh, Rosenthal, that uh, uh, what me struck most is uh, the G7 meeting in Japan and the clear stance, I would say, against China. So my feeling is that the major powers in hmm. the West, being the G7 countries, and that the, their leaders have realized that the West 
has to protect uh, itself. Because we see now also with the uh, war uh, Russia wages against Ukraine that the sanctions do not work. This was my conviction from the outset that, it, that they wouldn't work the sanctions. Uh, we have China supporting Russia. We have this uh, global competition between the US and China. We have this alternative when it comes to um, the G7, the BRICS countries, which now have surpassed uh, the G7 countries when you look at the share of the global GDP, 31.5% of the global GDP, the BRICS countries, the G7 countries, 30%. 40 uh, percent of the world's population, BRICS countries. So things are changing in the world. And the West has to understand that it has to protect itself. And when it comes to the West itself, to the political West, my fear is that um, our system in the global West of administering things when it comes to global affairs is not efficient enough. Europe is not strong enough. So Europe should be much more uh, aware of its role to be responsible for being what the Germans say Ordnungsmacht in Europe. So we should be a strong partner of the US in the political West, but the European Union should be the major, the major power on the European continent to uphold peace and security. It is not the case. The European Union was in charge of the conflict in Ukraine, Minsk agreements. It was in charge of the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, European community. But the Americans took over in the 90s in the former Yugoslavia. And then the Americans took over now basically the crisis management in Ukraine. So we have twice shown as Europeans that we are not efficient enough when it comes to crisis management. So we have to change things. But our American friends, they have to understand that it's also in their interest to have us as stronger partners in this alliance if we want to protect our interests in the world. Indeed. General? Well, let me respond to uh, the remarks of our Croatian colleague. Since I was a little bit involved when the first European failure occurred in over former Yugoslavia. In former Yugoslavia, we would have had a chance as Europeans if we had been prepared, if we had had the resolve to stand, if we had followed the logic which says you cannot uh, recognize a country like Croatia but denying the protection. Uh, what the basic mistake of the then German Foreign Minister Hans Tietjenscher <coughs> was. Um, we have learned from that and we know, we Europeans know that we have to be prepared for such European contingencies. But Ukraine is a different ballgame. There we are acting against, the, in terms of numbers, the biggest nuclear power in this world. And that is impossible to respond to without the Americans. So if the Americans hadn't been prepared to act in Ukraine, Russia would have had its way. And that, I think, is a basic difference between the failure in the 90s and uh, the lack of capabilities in, the, uh, in these days. And there we have to, I think we have to draw one conclusion. The one is 
there will be no security for Europe, whatever will happen, without the United States of America. And for the Americans, on the other hand, that means that there will be no world powers position for the United States without the European coastline being guarded by the Europeans for the maritime power United States of America. We both have to understand that equation, which means, of course, that the Europeans have to do much, much more to protect ourselves, and that is particularly true for Germany, which neglected its defense in the past 20 years beyond any description. Before we expand on uh, the G7 versus BRICS, which I think should be highlighted, considering the impact this is going to have for every continent around the world, I'd like to ask Professor Rosenthal to expand on, uh, we just heard, some uh, taste of strategic power competition. To what degree is uh, the European construct willing to accept a secondary role to that of the United States? <laughs> that is really a good question, because the atmosphere in Europe is, I would say, still, you know, history, leaning on history, while things are, have changed in, um, in the last century already. And this is uh, reinforced by developments in this century. And for that matter, you know, it's for me very clear that, as it has already been said, um, Europe needs the United States. And I would, uh, and it is a nasty uh, observation, I would say that we need the U.S. more than the U.S. needs Europe. And um, that's, that's, so it is not an uh, equation which is really uh, two-sided in many ways. Even though the Americans don't necessarily agree with you, considering the yeah. fact that they always highlight partners and allies as their strongest uh, tool against yes. China in that context. Yes, because, because of course they love to have... Uh, the Europeans on board. But let, let's face it, when we look at the defense expenditures, General Nauman was uh, mentioning it already, I would say that I now already see in my country and some other countries that um, um, the very uh, big expenditures which have been made in the Ukraine, in the uh, uh, Ukraine-Russian uh, war, uh, that some of, uh, in, in my country at least, I noticed that there are quite some objections against uh, staying at that level. And uh, even so, while my country has not uh, met the NATO standards, that's one. Secondly, when we talk about Europe and we we have within Europe two um, uh, countries which are members of the Security Council and have nuclear arms, then both of them have their difficulties of their own. UK, Brexit, and, the, and a very 
bad economic situation, which is not going to be improved over the coming year. Uh, France is typically, Americans are always talking about US exceptionalism, but uh, Macron knows also how to be exceptional in many ways. And um, um, then when we talk Europe and uh, our Croatian friend was very emphatic on it, at the moment, you know, I notice, uh, and I picked it up also from some other, some observers, that um, the founding fathers of the European Union today are uh, increasingly seeing a shift of, this, of a center of gravity towards the east and the center Europe. And it is just a matter of time that when Ukraine is pressing on membership of the EU, for instance, the Western Balkan states will ask for the same. Mm -hmm. And that is not, that is quite different from uh, Emmanuel Macron's statement that Europe should be strategically autonomous. And today he's even talking about should be sovereign of its own. So that is my uh, appreciation of the situation. Well, with that being said, there, there are uh, a lot of critics of the current uh, composition of the European Union, uh, particularly, but Europe at large, uh, considering the fact that uh, many of the um, values that uh, they always uh, like to highlight in, in Brussels do not necessarily align with the majority of Europeans to date. And uh, you have yourself, Mr. Soini, yeah. have been quite vocal about this matter. In particular, yeah. if I may quote you, you've said, among others, that we're not against Europe, we're against this kind of Europe, uh, which is bureaucratic, which is centralized, which is undemocratic, uh, ultimately within uh, the composition of European states, all of which have decided to do uh, champion democracy as their chosen form of leadership, of governance. Uh, it seems like the European Union is taking this away. Yeah, it's uh, when I, I was uh, in the European Parliament for two years and then I chaired the Foreign Relations Committee and then I was a foreign minister for four years. So every stage uh, I recognize that what is the, the space actually the small countries can decide uh, items and issues uh, just by themselves. And it is going to be more shallow and shallow. And, and the one big question is that for the small countries, the, the requirement of uni unanimous decisions has been in a way the way to, to, to make an impact. But there are strong rumors, for example, now that the common uh, security and foreign policy is heading to qualified ma majority decisions. And I understand it in that sense that quite many countries are tired to certain countries who are always blocking things what comes to, to, to different issues. And that has uh, enabled maybe the Brussels and the central machine, so to say, to realize that there is now the moment to increase their power. Because we have two structures in 
cooperation with Europe. The one line is European Parliament and Commission. They are federal structures. And then there is a Council of Ministers which is represented by national governments. And there is ongoing rivalry between them. And, and the twist of uh, hands that which, uh, which will go forward. But the big thing is that we need America. And when I was a minister, there was a lot of discussions about economical uh, development, TTIP uh, negotiations. Nobody talks about it anymore. Now there is rumors that so-called green stuff is protected by, Euro uh, by U.S. And now Mr. Macron is uh, launching a kind of self-governance of Europe in order to protect the big companies of Europe, not the, not the small people, but big companies. And that uh, may cause uh, quite a surprises within European Parliament elections next spring. Because if there are, for example, the stories like in Netherlands, there was a lady with the peasant party who who went skyrocketing up. And this can happen in various countries because if people are fed up that we cannot have a say. But the big security issue is, of course, Ukraine. I, I fully agree with uh, our colleagues that uh, America is rescuing us again. They have rescued uh, in the world First World War, the Second World War, Cold War, and, and now this war. And... and, and are there endless pockets? How, how, how would we cope if they will be fed up with Europe? And then there are elections to come. Who is going to be a Republican nominee? Biden is, how would I say, modestly not the most sexiest choice for the next season. But it could be, still be possible that he will be elected. But uh, will Europe, Ukraine or Europe as a whole have any role when a new president is elected in the United States? Or is it just domestic issues in the U.S. which make decision for us as well? Well, considering the fact that Biden currently uh, has managed to attain the lowest approval rates in U.S. history, I I'd be yeah. quite surprised and quite worried for European relations with the U.S. if uh, the American people would once again choose Biden to lead them uh, into whatever horizon they choose. But I'd like to ask you, uh, Dr. Kovac, uh, when we're looking at the current state of play, um, uh, something that Professor Rosenthal has touched upon in the past, and, and Mr. Soini has mentioned right now, the European Commission is the one that is leading the European Union rather than the Council of Ministers, which ultimately grants the, the leaders the, the capacity to yeah. direct this uh, union of sorts into... Uh, a, a particular direction. Uh, to what degree is that not counterproductive, considering the fact that this does once again contradict the interest of the people? First of all, I would say that um, we have a consensus when it comes to the importance of the partnership with the U.S. Uh, uh, without the U.S., we in Croatia wouldn't have had the possibility to liberate ourselves, our, our country. So we did it we, mm -hmm. because we had the support of the U.S., the informal support, not the official, but they don't know, 1995. But um, Mrs. Uh, von der Leyen, she's a very uh, smart lady. She uh, apparently managed to uh, build up a very uh, efficient relationship with Mr. Biden. 
and uh, that helps her to play that role. Also now when it comes to the war, uh, Russia wages against Ukraine. I understand that uh, the uh, les chefs, as they call the uh, prime ministers and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the leaders of the European Union, are not very happy with that, but that's reality. Uh, but right now, there is no choice. I mean, uh, uh, even if Mr. Trump were president and she, uh, with Mrs. von der Leyen as uh, uh, president of the European Commission and having that American policy towards Ukraine, we would have this kind of partnership between the Commission and the U.S. Um, that may change with Mr. Trump. But nonetheless, I insist upon the idea that uh, the U.S. will need, in the long run, a much more emancipated European Union. Because we have to take much more care of ourselves and of our security on the continent, while, of course, keeping the relationship with the U.S., which is crucial, which is essential. It would be crazy to, to go for an autonomous uh, European policy. It wouldn't work. There would be no consensus because the French would like it, for instance, the Germans wouldn't accept it, uh, the Poles wouldn't accept it, so it is not possible to, uh, to carry out. It is not possible. It's a nice idea, I understand the idea, you cannot carry it out, this idea by Mr. By Mr. Macron. And to conclude, when Mr. Trump was very aggressive when it comes to defense spending, I said, look, I mean, this is a, this is a chance for, for the European Union to become more, to be more emancipated. Because he's right. We have to spend much more on defense. Mm -hmm. And if we spend more on defense, we will have a word to say. Because if you don't spend enough on defense, and you only ex expect from the Americans to, to spend on, on defense on Europe, it doesn't make sense. So you spend more, and you have a word to say. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Because what, what is going on? Europe, or the European has to, the major countries, have to reappropriate the capacity to act strategically, a capacity which was more or less lost after World War II. After World War I, there was already a problem, but after World War II, this capacity to act, to think strategically, uh, 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 disappeared. And just to say a final, final, to share a final thought, the idea of a defense community in 1944, 1954 was proposed by the Americans. Even the idea of creating European community was an American idea. But the French, they voted in the Assemblée Générale against the idea of rearming Germany. Because the Americans wanted a European defense community. The French were against in 1954. And then the Americans were fed up and said, OK, no problem, we don't care. We'll take the Germans into, the, into, into NATO. We don't care about defense community anymore. Konrad <laughs> Adenauer was very happy for yes, that. Since yes, that yes, yes. <laughs> That opened the door towards yes. the United States of America. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, General, ultimately, when we're looking at uh, this uh, framework, obviously there, there are going to be a lot of challenges that uh, Europe is going to encounter, regardless of what path it chooses. But uh, one point is clear. Its eastern flank continues to be vulnerable, and the challenge that uh, Europe faces on its eastern flank has to do with the emergence of a new world order in light of the political and legal implications of Russia's invasion into Ukraine, 
how can uh, Europe deal with such a reality when ultimately it's not going to be the deciding factor to the outcome of that reality? Well, first of all, uh, I would say, looking at the debate we had so far, we didn't mention one point which will remain the real crucial point. Strategy is, is decided upon geograph uh, geostrategic factors. And the one geostrategic factor which will remain and which is unchangeable is there is no security for Europe without being capable of controlling the Atlantic. Having said that, it is for us Europeans indispensable to be allied to the United States of America. Without that, no security at mm. all. In order to achieve such alliances on a, based on friendship or, or notions of values and convictions, they are based on interests. And the Americans have one interest which ties us to the Europeans. We have to take care of the European continent. And we can do that and we have to do it. Um, there is no doubt the main focus is now on the Eastern Front. And we have to be sure that, or we have to be capable of protecting ourselves against Russia. That will remain the, I think, the point of main emphasis for the years to come. And it will take us years. And we have, we Europeans, I think, should try to get our acts together. Not continue like we do it right now, to have six different aircraft produced by six different European companies, which is ridiculous. Um, not to have a dozen of tanks and, and what have you. If we were able to get our acts together, we could save year by year approximately 10 to 20 billions, which is waste right now by this variety of national egoisms. If we did this, if we brought our capabilities together, we would remain an ally which the Americans would value. And this brings me to Monsieur Macron, who obviously uh, didn't quite understand what uh, autonomy really means for European strategy. To, to state after he has left Beijing that the Europeans should not care about the uh, situation in the Indo-Pacific Ocean Taiwan. means that he had not understood that strategy for Europe means to think globally. We cannot turn our back if the Strait of Malacca, through which 44% of our trade is going, <laughs> will be in danger. Mm. So we mm. have to be prepared there. And if we are willing to be a reliable partner of the United States of America in that part of the world as well, they will appreciate that. And this would enable both of us, Europe and the Americans, to find a solution for the conflict with China without ending up in a conflict and in war. And I think that's what's at stake. And that we should understand. If we did this, we have all options open for Europe. And I think we still have a chance. Uh, with regard to saving money, I'm sure that the European Union can find plenty of avenues where to save from. Uh, 
particularly when we're speaking about joint manufacturing of weaponry. I'm not sure uh, whether nations would be willing to uh, forgo that reality. But uh, let's take the, the Netherlands and Germany as an example. Obviously, two militaries are sure. seemingly integrating sure. into one another, um, which now both nations are going to rely on one holistic force. Uh, is that something that will not impair uh, the national sovereignty of uh, the Netherlands? If we, of course, take into account the fact that the Netherlands, under its current constitution, Article 91, if I'm not mistaken, already forego uh, its own sovereignty, and whatever happens in Brussels ultimately impacts decision-making in the Netherlands uh, in its entirety? That's a, that last point is definitely true. Um, so the first point my is wrong. My country is, has decided a long time ago already that international law, international treaties uh, uh, are superior to our national law. And we are, uh, for that matter, uh, sovereignty is uh, sovereignty uh, for a large part with uh, some quite some uh, reservations. Now, with regard to uh, the fact that uh, our armed forces are very, very heavily connected now to the Bundeswehr and even integrating our military units I within. Was, I was at the beginning of this process. So uh, that is accepted full-heartedly in my country at this moment. So that's not, not the case. But let's take another level. Let's look at two other points, I would say. First, it was already mentioned when it is about Europe. It is difficult for a population in the Netherlands and also in other member states to see that the European Commission, which is a kind of half political, semi-political and semi-bureaucratic kind of entity, that it actually, in the daily affairs of Europe, is definitely preceding the European Council, which here, it was here mentioned, and it is, to me, a very unpleasant observation, which is considered to be secondary to the European Commission. While this European Council is a gathering of the leaders, the political leaders of their country. So that makes for the fact, and that is for me one of the predicaments or one of the dilemmas. We can't now engage in all kinds of institutional adventures in Europe. But as, we, as it is right now, this European architecture, which you were talking about, is not, um, is not to the standards of what the public at large in Europe wants to see. That's one. I have a totally different message about Europe's global perspective. Before the Ukrainian-Russian war, started, there was a lot of talk about the danger for Europe of being, as it was called, sandwiched between, on the one hand, US, United States, and on the other hand, China. Now, what we see right now is we are talking about the absolute need for Europe to take the transatlantic mode and to be 
to, to work together with the United States. At the same time, even today, you see European leaders one by one meeting their Chinese friends for simple commercial reasons. Yeah. And when we talk economy here, the interests of the United States and Europe are not coinciding. They are, of course, a matter of fierce competition. And that makes it quite troublesome to say that um, we are simply allies to the United States when the United States take a very tough stance, economy-wise, towards China. So the picture is, for me, rather, rather um, uh, arduous. And yet we see the Chinese coming into Europe and investing heavily Absolutely. in infrastructure from taking over uh, yeah, ports well, in Greece as well, well as there, investments there, in Hamburg. There are so. limits to that and the European countries do, do understand they, that they don't have to, that they should uh, not uh, just uh, give away their technology to the, to the Chinese. In my country, our ASML chip machine is curtailed in its um, possibilities of exporting their most sophisticated machines to China. But this was done under heavy pressure from Mr. from President Biden himself. Our prime minister had to come to Washington and take the message. Briefly. One sentence. Hmm. I think the the one important sentence of this recent G7 meeting was that the G7, including the United States of America, accepted with regard to China the concept of de-risking, yeah. which is no longer a total blockade. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no uncoupling, but de-risking. Yeah, yeah right. Right. Mr. Soini, uh, ultimately uh, the situation in Ukraine is uh, a point that continues to trouble uh, all European nations, but Finland in particular. Yeah. Uh, your nation just recently joined also NATO. Uh, to what degree is this still uh, a point of contention within uh, the uh, Finnish leadership, which is now yeah. uh, reshuffling, so to speak, into a yeah. new, more conservative reality. Is there going to be a change of heart vis-a-vis, uh, -vis not particularly Ukraine, but uh, in the amount of support granted to Ukraine at this stage? Ukraine is very, very dear to us and for obvious reasons. And uh, of course, on our flank, uh, the, the security of the Baltic countries cannot be uh, defended without uh, Finland and Sweden. And uh, now Finland, uh, Sweden is still in the waiting room. It's, it's um, how would I say, it's, it's sad and it's, it's sorrowful and it's even humiliating. And it's uh, dependent on Mr. Erdogan, who could be re-elected. Uh, and uh, this, this should be solved. But then uh, I, I see on, on the long run, also the problem uh, of the economy, because there must be redevelopment uh, schemes to be done and uh, fulfill. We actually do have to start to construct uh, Ukraine again. We cannot wait for two, three years to, to put that in pieces, but we have to start 
even at the risk that there is war continuing on that, because otherwise the Ukraine would be sliding to a country which is all ruins. It cannot function. More people will leave Ukraine. There, there is a population of 44 million in Ukraine, and now maybe 8 million has left already. If another 8 million will lose because there is no housing, there is no infrastructure, no schools, that must be acting. We must be acting the more rapid way that we are thinking. And of course, it's a nearer heresy to say that we should um, end up with this war because we mm. cannot now mm. uh, discuss uh, with, uh, with uh, Russia, who is an invasion, and the only uh, acceptable solution is that Russia is leaving. And uh, I have a feeling that they are not leaving very easily. How on earth we are going to, to end this conflict? Uh, and uh, I don't dare to suggest that we are going to have uh, negotiations with Russia. But look at the Pope. Pope has mm. a scheme and, uh, and uh, killing everybody is uh, unanimous to say that we must stop killing. And then when we ask when, after five years. Which obviously uh, this drove is, Poland this, to change its uh, yeah, rhetoric. Of yeah, course. and this is... This is really, really hard situation. And then uh, uh, I'm afraid that in Africa there is a new immigration cri crisis rising. If Sudan, uh, Middle East is, is boiling, what if Erdogan says that uh, the Syrians can leave? There are three million in Syria. If they would test uh, the Europe, how it was tested 2015, 2000. 16. It was a hell of a time. I was in office that, uh, and, and a million people came throughout to Germany, also to Finland, uh, Sweden, and Norway. We cannot take that anymore. And still, we don't have a system, distributive system, so-called burden sharing between European Union states. If a new crisis emerges, we are there with the bear bomb. Of course, uh Part of the legacy, I think, that Angela Merkel would like to forget, uh, and she was the one ultimately who appointed uh, uh, Ms. von der Leyen, uh, who currently is the leader of the European Union, yeah. the leader of the, the Commission, so who knows, her policies may yet stand. Uh, <laughs> Professor <laughs> Kovac, I, I'd like to hear your perspective on, on uh, the Ukraine matter, but also uh, from Croatia's perspective, considering the, the geographic placing, uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the the yeah. uh, significance of that uh, within that context. To what degree do you see that as a dark challenge for the Baltics, but also in the area of, of Croatia in particular? In 2015, I was in Washington for a conference of the EPP, and Mr. Pompeo was there too. At that time, he was a member. He was a senator or congressman. Congressman yeah, for congressman. for Kansas, I think. And uh, and I said the that um, what we need is peace forces in Ukraine. So we should have sent, not we, right? the West should have sent on the demand of the Ukrainians peace forces to interpose there. It wasn't done. Mm. I'm sure that the Russians would not have attacked a second time with Canadian forces, British forces, I don't know, Croatian forces uh, mm. as peace forces, I'm sure. We had the same thing, of course, Russia something else, 
General Nauman is right. Russia is not Serbia or Milosevic. Putin is not Milosevic. I mean, the, 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 the power uh, uh, Putin has as a uh, nuclear weapons he has at his disposal. But at the same time, he wasn't as strong 10, 12 years ago, ago as, as he is right now. And the Russian military, and Mr. Cavoli said, General Cavoli, uh, the UCOM commander, the Russian military is not really affected by the war. It's still huge potential. Mm. Mm? It is now building up its military. Mm. Now they, they have become trained. So the, the major mistake that was made, to my mind, is that we did not send peace forces in 2014-15 to Ukraine. Mm, well. It would have been completely different. <laughs> they wouldn't have attacked Canadian, British, American, and, and so on forces, I'm sure. Would have, okay. been, would have been vetoed by Russia in the Security Yes, but it could have been a Western-led Western -led peace operation on the demand of the Ukrainians. The this is my personal conviction. I may be mistaken, of course. And right now, right now, I mean, the Ukrainians, they fight very courageously. Not easy for them. But at the same time, uh, if you read, for instance, the national... Uh, um, the, the report uh, which was uh, produced by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, Mrs. Haynes. Um, it is said clearly that it is not probable that the, the um, uh, risk, or the, uh, risk assessment uh, report, it is not uh, probable that Russia will uh, take over the whole of Donbass in, in this year. What does that mean? that the idea is still there that the Russians may succeed in taking over control of the Donbass. I'm not happy also with the rhetoric of the Ukrainians that they will start their offensive. You don't speak about that. I understand that they, have, that they need to encourage their people, they encourage their partners, us. I understand that. But we didn't do that in creation in, in, in 1995. We didn't speak a word about our offensives in May and in August 1995. We just carried them out. So you don't do that. And now we are, uh, it's, it, it's the end of May. We're speaking of, uh, about a spring offensive. Mm -hmm. In three weeks, we're going to be in the summer. So there's still no spring offensive. So it should be much more intelligent not to speak about a big offensive, to prepare it and then carry it out. But it's going to be quite difficult. You have to be sure that the Russians, and this is my personal conviction, also based upon what the Americans are saying, like Mrs. Haynes, Director of National Intelligence last year, if Putin, this is the crazy thing, if Putin should feel that he loses the war, that he cannot keep the territories he, uh, uh, he uh, 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 conquered, that he might go nuclear. This is something we should not exclude. And if you try to think as a, as a leader, as a leader of a world power, it is mm. unfortunately something we cannot exclude. And that, that, that's a big risk. What Even at the expense of alienating their relationship with China and uh, others in uh, if, hmm, the he, BRICS composition? Yes, Jonathan, but next year we're going to have election not only in the U.S., but also in Russia. So if he wants to survive politically, what does he do? Does he capitulate? Hmm. Hmm. Could, I, could, I, could I, could I uh, interrupt in this very, very briefly? It strikes me what you're telling, because... Uh, Last time we had a, uh, a session here, I said that I noticed two red lines on the part of uh, going nuclear for Russia, 
that was the red line um, stated by uh, Xi Jinping. On the Western side, there, there seemed to be a red line when it was about Ukraine reconquering the Crimea. But today, I hear different stories to that effect. So, talking red lines, that is simply my suggestion, talking red lines is a uh, cumbersome matter. And That's then, just statement of fact. Uh, General Nauman, I'd like to hear your point on this, but you, you uh, stated once, and I'd like to quote you on this, uh, military strategy is not just about winning battles, it's about achieving political objectives. Neither side achieved any political objectives for that matter. Uh, <clears throat> is this currently uh, a reality in which nobody is truly ripe for any dialogue in order to achieve breakthrough? Well, we do not know exactly what Putin's real objectives are. We, if I take as his sketch of a strategic objective what he put forward in December 2021, this so-called ultimatum, which meant in reality to turn the wheel back to 1997. If that is uh, Putin's objective, then we have to we have to tell him, if we do not want to endanger countries like the Baltic states, like Moldavia and others, then we have to tell him very clearly, you won't get it, whatever it will cost. You won't get it, and you can't defeat the West as long as we stand together. That he should know. And at the same time, we should stop to deter ourselves by permanently saying, we are afraid of nuclear weapons. If we really look very carefully what nuclear weapons could achieve in this ongoing conflict, if we remain at the tactical level of nuclear weapons, it will not mean that he could win the war in Ukraine. He could do a lot of damage, but he could not win. And what he will lose is, strategically spoken, the same what he lost already with regard to Finland. He lost Finland as a, if I may say, so neutral buffer zone. Now he has 1,300 kilometers more NATO frontline, strategic defeat. And he would achieve the same if he used nuclear weapons, since he would lose China, and he would probably lose India. That means the global south will disappear. But is the problem for me with Russia is as long as Russia remains fixed to this idea of a, a new Russian imperialism, Russia will not be able to negotiate a peace. As long as this idea remains, we will remain in conflict. And that means we, the Europeans, the Americans, we have to prepare, uh, be prepared for a very long-lasting conflict. There may be periods of standstills, of ceasefires, but as long as this idea of a Russian imperium is not gone, we will remain in conflict. Well, I think also about particularly the nuclear angle. If most countries would truly be that concerned, uh, undoubtedly 
they would be a lot more eager on laying their hands on surface-to-air capacities, which uh, I only see Germany currently pursuing the Aero 3, a few other countries, uh, Finland, the David Sling, other uh, countries uh, utilizing some, uh, the THAAD systems and so on, but uh, you don't see a widespread rush to try and, and uh, materialize capabilities that would technically nullify this Russian threat altogether. Uh, but I'd like to ask you, Professor Rosenthal, when we're talking particularly about uh, the, the Russian role, as you mentioned at the start of today's program, as a puppet of China, uh, which you said very carefully, um, isn't it uh, fair to say that Russia is playing a certain part within a broader uh, strategy within the context of strategic power competition uh, to allow China and its secondary uh, support units within the BRICS composition. We see uh, South Africa supporting Russia with military hardware as opposed to uh, what uh, it's uh, initially claimed and then the Americans refuted. We see India playing an increasing role in procuring uh, certain elements from uh, Russia and uh, China, even though I don't really understand how that really works between India and China, but that's a different story. H how does that evolve in your perspective? Well, right from the start of this Ukrainian-Russian war, there was the story that Russia was being cornered, that was driven out of the so-called international community, and I saw different things. We were, everybody was talking in the, on the Western side about UN General Assembly resolutions, which were adopted by 140 against only seven against. But I looked at the abstentions, and the abstentions were um, representing more than half of the world population, India, China, and uh, South Africa, for instance, looking at the BRICS, there is this letter R, the capital R, Russia. We have Brazil, which is taking its own uh, course in this, in this conflict, in this war. We have India, you mentioned already. Uh, China, you mentioned already too. So the mm. idea that Russia is being isolated to the extent we want it to be, is quite dubious. Mm. At the same time, I repeat myself, so I can be very brief on it. When we look at the Chinese-Russian relations, I see that Russia has done a very stupid thing in, the, in invading Ukraine because it is right against everything which China says to represent, namely being a reliable actor in the world global order. Well, we're drawing near to the end of this uh, panel today, and I'd like to give each and every one of you a closing statement, brief, and a closing assessment. Mr. Sonia, we'll start with you. I try to be optimistic because this <laughs> is this is what the, the people need, because we have had yeah. economic crisis, price of food, price of gas, price of electricity, interest, plus inflation. People need hope and we should uh, be able to guarantee that there is still life to be li lived. 
I'm also optimistic. I think that uh, the West has to be united, but I think at the same time that we have to try to understand how the Chinese think, how the Russians think, and that we should be very, very uh, uh, prudent when it comes to our own Western-made hypotheses. In the, if we organize ourselves well, I believe that we will be still uh, uh, in charge. General Nauman? I also try to be optimistic and uh, uh -huh. I should say we should clearly say uh, to the Chinese and to the Russians, we are prepared to talk with you about the new world order which would be based on the concept of multipolarity, provided we can all assure each other that one principle will remain the cornerstone of that and that is that all participants in such an agreement will respect territorial integrity and will not change any borders by the use of force. Professor Rosenthal. Well, let me join in this uh, effort to be as optimistic as possible and uh, say that indeed it is by itself remarkable how when the Ukrainian-Russian war started the Russians miscalculated to such a formidable extent the disposition of the West to stay firm and to be united. And we should understand that when it is about a global uh, context at large, we have our democracy, we have to defend it against those who don't want to uh, cherish that idea. It's always nice to end with an optimistic note. I'd like to thank General Nauman, Professor Rosenthal, Mr. Soini and Professor Kovac for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank all of you at home as well. Until next time, from me here in Helsinki, have a good evening. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.